Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game-based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. Minicoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out Minicoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Minicoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Minicoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today, my guest is Daniel McAdams. He's the executive director of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity and also the co-host of the Ron Paul Liberty Report. He previously served in Ron Paul's congressional office in Washington as a foreign affairs and defense advisor. And with all the no good the U.S. government seems to be up to on the world stage, I'm so glad to have him back here on the podcast. Daniel, welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. It's great to be back on the show again. We were thinking about getting together just before your trip to the Mises Institute. And I'm actually glad we couldn't get the schedules right because I had an opportunity to listen to your speech. And it certainly turned a few light bulbs on for me. And I'm definitely going to link to it on the show notes page. I wanted to talk a little bit about Ukraine, which for all of March, all of April, and at least part of May was the only news that you would see if you went to NBC's website CNN, anything above the fold as they speak, where you didn't have to scroll down. You only saw news about Ukraine, a war we're technically not even in, and nothing about anything going on in the United States. I found that absolutely bizarre. In your experience, and you've been in the media in past decades, has anything like this ever happened in U.S. media? Well, the thing is that media has changed a lot. You know, social media has changed that over, say, the last five to 10 years. The decline of the sort of mainstream U.S. media in print form, obviously, but even the main, the departure from the mainstream voices, even electronically now, the rise of alternative publications. So in a way, we're comparing apples to oranges. But overall, you have that same sense that you had, for example, when I worked for Dr. Paul on the Hill uh, in the run-up to the Iraq War where the naysayers, the skeptics, were branded as not wrong or bad analysis, but bad people, evil people, maybe in league with Saddam Hussein, loving terrorists, loving terrorism. But I would think now the changes in the media and the fact, which is the, the, the big phenomenon, I think, over the past couple of years, is how obviously social media is absolutely in bed with governments to control narratives. That has made it more difficult to challenge the narratives because you simply can be disappeared now. 
So I think that's that's a difference right now. And why is the media so willing to get in bed with the government? Is there a market for the government narrative and that's what they're serving? Is the government distorting the market for media? What's happened? Well, the media does benefit from establishing a narrative, particularly a war narrative, a plucky democracy overseas that must be supported. People want to tune in. You know, the, the, the latest story about Zelensky, the latest photo shoot of him and his wife in Vogue, you know, all of this stuff. You know, Americans, partly by, na- by, by virtue of our geography, have never had to bear the brunt of our aggressive foreign policy, the militaristic foreign policy. We thank God don't have cities blown up, you know, a couple of times it happened, but uh, generally speaking, it doesn't happen. So it's basically sit back, crack open a brew, watch the latest about the hero Zelensky in the trenches fighting for democracy and freedom and the American way. And, uh, you know, the Russians are all a bunch of Nazis. And if you disagree, you're a bad person. You're probably a Nazi yourself. So it's really cost free to get involved in this. And I think the media plays this up because it gets people interested in things. Yeah, that's funny, too, that you mentioned, I think we've talked before about the fact that our geography, unfortunately, indirectly allows Americans to support war cost free. And what jumped into my mind, and I don't want this to come out the wrong way, is that people who didn't have loved ones or don't know anybody in New York City were still somehow traumatized by 9-11 just a few years ago. What an awful attack on our country this was. And of course, it was awful. The people that our foreign policy affects, they've got 9-11 every week in some countries. And just the difference in experience is off the charts there. I want to talk about your speech a little, because in addition to what we just said about the media and the American public, the title of your speech was great. U.S. foreign policy is welfare for the rich. What did you mean by that? Well, it's not you and I that benefit, that's for sure, from our foreign policy. It's not the average American that benefits. It's not even the average business that benefits from having 50,000 State Department employees and God knows how many CIA and all of the others stationed overseas. If you peel away the layers and look at who benefits, what happens, how does America benefit as such and as individuals, the answer is shocking. It's zero. There is no benefit to having embassies overseas and having hundreds of U.S. government pencil neck personnel running around fomenting coups. I mean, even in the best case scenario where maybe they're talking about some kind of deal to help facilitate American trade, that could easily be better accomplished by the people involved, you know, the people, the company owners, et cetera. The last thing you need is them. So there's nothing in it for us, but there's a hell of a lot in it for them. Whether you're in the military industrial complex and you just got done selling, you know, um, 7,000 missiles to the U.S. government to send over to Ukraine, whether you're in the media business, as we've discussed, whether you're in the think tank business and you put out yet another paper saying what a golly gee great idea it would be to provoke war with China or you're Josh Rogan writing in the Washington Post that, you know what, simultaneous wars with China and Russia, that's not such a bad thing, you know, it's something we should look into. So there are a lot of special interests that benefit from our aggressive foreign policy. And as I argue in the speech, from foreign policy full stop. And that is something we have to address, especially as libertarians and non-interventionists. I think a lot of people who might 
even object to just that 60 billion in aid that was sent to Ukraine. Even some of the objectors have it kind of on the wrong basis because they're thinking we took 60 billion from Americans and then sent it to Ukrainians. But as you say in your speech, that's not really true. No, there's n- not a single person whose foot got blown off is going to have it sewn back on, you know, thanks to that $60 billion. It all goes from the Treasury just across town to the Beltway bandits who are producing these weapons. It goes to corrupt politicians in Ukraine, which, by the way, we knew for years and years and years how corrupt Ukraine was. Transparency International found them to be among the most corrupt countries on earth. Mainstream media, Washington Post, New York Times, over and over and over over the years talked about corruption in Ukraine. And then all of a sudden, when that plucky little democracy, which, by the way, as I mentioned in the speech, all opposition parties are banned, all non-government media is banned. Imagine if, you know, something like that happened in Belarus, you know, we'd be jumping up and or anywhere else for that matter that's on the hit list of U.S. enemies. But never mind that. Once that is established, once that narrative is established, that money's there and it's a huge slush fund slushing around for special interests that dips their beaks into And believe me, they're doing it constantly. The light bulb that went off for me, because I really have been struggling with two things. Number one, how could the media be that distorted and crazy for two months? And no one but me seems to think it's crazy. I know you did too, but most people that I interact with that there's no news about the United States on any news website anywhere. But the light bulb that went off was, was that all just an ad campaign for that 60 billion? Is that what really what was behind it all? Because now that the 60 billion is gone, no more stories about Ukraine or a lot less anyway. Back to our regular programming, right? (laughs) Well, I mean, we had two years of getting literally pummeled in the face every single day over the COVID thing. And once the indemnification of the pharmaceutical companies, once the big bucks were made by the Fauci's of the world, once the big bucks were made by the Amazons of the world at the expense of the Mon Paw stores that closed down everywhere in the country, once that was done, we stopped hearing so much about COVID too. So it's a massive gaslighting scheme, I think, on the part of the elites in the U.S. Uh, you know, as, as we talked about in our last conference in Washington last year, it's a war on us. And that war continues. And, you know, until more Americans wake up and understand that they hate us, they hate our guts, it's going to it's going to keep continuing, except, you know, we're going to have an economic collapse pretty soon. So as Dr. Paul would say, maybe it'll all sort itself out when that happens. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you're enjoying the content here on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, You can support my efforts here a couple of ways at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. You can join my Patreon for as little as $3 per month and get machine transcripts to every episode and access to my members-only MeWe group, while all access patrons also get my paid subscriber-only articles and videos Or you can become a VIP patron to get all of that, plus access to all of my online courses and a signed copy of the Tom Mullen book of your choice. Now, if you prefer Substack, I also post my paid subscriber-only content there. Find links to all the ways you can support the show at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. Become a supporter of Tom Mullen Talks Freedom today. And now let's get back to our episode. 
wonder that was this like kind of well we got 60 billion or so more that we can scalp and that's going to be about it so we'll we'll do this last one and it's not looking good for the midterm so we might as well get what we can before we're we're you know we're out of the gravy train the seats in the house i don't know it's hard to say but it just seems very coincidental that as soon as all that money was appropriated then all the media seemed to stop yeah But don't forget, both parties love war. They love this war. They love all war. And I would say Exhibit A is look how they reacted when Senator Paul said, okay, you know, basically he knew I'm I'm not going to win this fight over the money. But he said, okay, we got to send the money over. Can we at least have like hire accountant? (laughs) You know, can we at least hire someone to make sure that all of these shoulder fired rockets are not going to start being launched at at the civilian aircraft? And what was he called? Every name in the book, you know, Schumer said, you're using Putin's talking points, you know, just to have. A kind of an inspector general like we had in Afghanistan to tell us the truth about what was happening to the money. And now all of a sudden you're starting to see some stories. You know, the, the CBS News was, was fascinating because CBS News did an investigation about the weapons that we sent over there. And they concluded from this investigative report that 70% of what we sent does not end up where it's supposed to be, doesn't end up on the front line. So where does it go? In whose hands? Nobody knows. What did they do the next day? They buried their own report under pressure from governments, including Ukraine, which, by the way, uses these billions of dollars. They, they, they have their snouts in the, in, the, in the till, too. They use it to hire PR firms to push for more money. You know, it's, it's really my friend Chuck Spinney calls it the self-licking ice cream cone. They steal our money to propagandize lawmakers to send more to buy more, you know, lobbyists. So it's an absolute scam, just like foreign policy as such is a scam. Part of the scam early on, too, on your plucky little democracy narrative was that Ukraine was actually winning, that things were going well, Russia overestimated, maybe a little bit that they did. People fighting for their own country are pretty hard to conquer, as we found out in Afghanistan. Now, it seems like that narrative has disappeared. For the most part, I saw an article the other day that claimed that Russia had sustained 80,000 casualties, casualties that includes killed and wounded. So it would be less than 80,000. But in 14 years, the United States only lost something like 57,000 people in Vietnam. I got to think that number is inflated. What do you think about it? Well, I think the numbers are completely bogus. The figure you talk about came out of the MI6 in the UK, which are a bunch of notorious liars. I don't know. We do know from history that Russia is able to sustain losses when it feels like its national interest is threatened, when it feels like feels like there's an existential threat. No matter if you like them or not, they're able to take you know 10 or 20 million dead if they're fighting something that they view as for their existence. So if those numbers are correct, and I absolutely don't believe them in any stretch of the way, that's not going to dissuade them because they view this as an existential issue. And as for the narrative that you know people fighting for their homeland, that is partly true. And we learned a lot of that from Afghanistan. But let's not forget, according to language patterns and voting patterns and political behavior, that that eastern part of Ukraine is Russian, by and large. They vote 90% for the pro-Russian party. They voted for Yanukovych twice by massive margins. And they did vote for Zelensky because he ran on a platform of implementing the Minsk Minsk agreements, of more autonomy for 
uh, Eastern Ukraine and, and of opening up and ending the siege. He ran on a peace platform and got the majority of the votes in the East. But the reason why it didn't go so badly so quickly for the Russians, as the narrative was explaining, is by and large because the people felt like they were being liberated in that part of the world. That is not to diminish the horror of war. And I've seen plenty of it, and it's horrible and disgusting. Nevertheless, we have to be adults, and we have to look at things objectively. A lot of the people, just as the people in Crimea felt themselves to be liber liberated, they no longer wanted to live in a country. That's why they broke away, where the language was restricted, where they were shelled every day from Kiev troops. So it's not beyond the realm. It's not beyond you know, our ability to, to grasp reason, to understand why they feel this way. Yeah, and I guess... It's funny because we shouldn't have to say this, but because of the way the media is and what most people innocently believe from consuming it, the fact that we don't see Vladimir Putin as this one-dimensional Dr. Evil villain or the United States State Department and intelligence community and military uh, as this one-dimensional Superman truth justice in the American way, that doesn't mean that the people in Ukraine, the people who just live there under whatever government they get, like we do, they're the real victims here because nobody cares about them. Joe Biden certainly doesn't care about them. And of course, Vladimir Putin has got his own objectives there. He may care about the Russian speaking part of the population, but it's still a war that's killing a lot of the Russian speaking part of the population. So it's really just a bad, bad situation. And I guess the segue to that is, how does it end? I'm not even sure what to believe about how it's going. I'm pretty sure everyone agrees that Russia has got that one province, the northeastern one, secured. And the other of the two eastern provinces, Donetsk, they're still fighting there. What's your assessment of where the war is right now? Well, a couple of things. First of all, I'm not a military expert, so I listen to people who I know are military experts. And that's why I listen to people like Colonel Douglas McGregor. I listen to people like Scott Ritter, who spoke at our re recent conference. People who are independently thinking, in the case of Colonel McGregor, he's a guy who basically drove a tank into Baghdad, right? So he knows a little bit about warfare. So, uh, you know, those are the people that I listen to, independent-minded people. We do know that Russia, I mean, Ukraine is a big, big, big country. That's one thing to, to get to grasp our head around. The eastern part is the industrialized part of the country for the most part, and Russia controls 20% of that, roughly 20% of the territory in the of the country in the east. That is a huge achievement militarily over the past few months. So the idea, I mean, we have in our mind, because we are, you know, we've been sort of raised to think that war is shock and awe, where you go in there and you basically level, you know, Baghdad and kill everyone and everything in sight. That's what we did. That's what we did in Afghanistan. That's what we did in Libya. Look at some pictures of Libya after we liberated it. And that's not how this war has gone, for better or for worse. People do argue that Russia doesn't want to decimate the civilian population because they view them as Russians. That makes sense to me. I don't know if it's, you know, I don't know how accurate it is. It makes sense to me. And as you, um, you know, there's this pressure to view things in such a binary way. Putin is singularly evil and the U.S. is singularly good. Well, we know that's, that's, that's bogus. But the more important part, Tom, is that I don't care. I don't care if Putin is a James Bond 007 level bad guy with the cat on his lap. He hasn't <laughs> done anything to threaten the United States. The fact that he has a border dispute with his neighbor, 
Well, how did that come about? Because we kept putting weapons on the border of Russia in, in the neighbor's territory. We kept building biolabs and putting rockets. So that tends to irritate people as it would irritate us. The, the most tragic part about this war, aside from the human suffering and death, is that it didn't have to happen. We were never going to allow Ukraine in NATO. And in fact, former Ambassador Michael McFaul said that in a debate with Stephen Walt. I, I've mentioned it several times, and it's worth going back to look at the clip. When Stephen Walt said, well, we gave the Russians, you know, if we knew that the, the Ukraine wasn't going to get into NATO, why didn't we just say so? Why were, were we just lying? And McFaul laughed his butt off and said, of course we are. We lie all the time. <laughs> so it was a real funny joke, wasn't it, McFaul? And a lot of people died. It didn't have to happen. Regardless of the outcome, there is no benefit to us. There's only downside. So that's the real issue. You know, you can we can talk about, is he a bad guy? Is he a good guy? Are we bad guys? The point is, it didn't have to happen. It was an absolutely unnecessary war. That's the sick tragedy. And that's why I've come to the conclusion that we just have to stop. We have to stop foreign policy completely. The U.S. must completely end foreign policy. That's the only solution, because everything they touch just turns to. Well, and I think when people hear the words foreign policy, it's almost a euphemism, right? You, you think of diplomats and and ambassadors. But when we say when they say foreign policy, they mean empire building and empire maintenance. Yeah. But what do ambassadors do? I mean, what does what does a political officer at the U.S. embassy in like name the country? What do they do now? Do they do some reporting on facts on the ground? Yeah, that, that might be beneficial. They cultivate they probably cultivate relationships with influential people in the home country and they may get some information that way. That could be potentially beneficial, I think. Although in today's media, you can probably do just as well and save a heck of a lot of money just by reading their, their press. You know, I don't know that you need that, but certainly you don't need 50,000 people. Um, the things they do every day are things that, you know, if we went down to the store and that was on a shopping list, we wouldn't buy any of it because we don't want any of that stuff done. The average person doesn't because it doesn't benefit and it costs too much. So you know, that's that's why I just urge that we rethink what this whole thing is about and realize we just don't need it. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you like to read books as much as I do, there comes a time when you realize you just won't ever find the time to read every book you're interested in. Well, I have great news. Blinkist offers the key ideas from nonfiction bestsellers in as little as 15 minutes. For most books and their extensive library, you can choose to read or listen to Blinks, which summarize the main ideas and allow you to absorb whole books in the time it takes to run your daily errands or commute to work. Not only does Blinkist allow you to glean the information you need from books you don't have time to read, it helps you to decide which ones to spend time reading and get more details. You can try out Blinkist for free and get 20% off your first year by going to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist. Start your free trial and get 20% off today. And now let's get back to the show. Assuming that they find a way out of this, and of course, 
any solution in Ukraine now is going to involve Russia either controlling or dictating what goes on in the territory they already have. What makes me a little bit pessimistic is that if we get this so-called red wave in November, and let's just say even the MAGA Republicans take over, what I'm hearing from them is the ones that do oppose the war in Ukraine is we should be concentrating on China. What are your thoughts about that? Exactly. There's so much of that in the Trump crowd. We shouldn't be fighting Russia. We got to fight China. You know, missing the whole point of this exercise. And that's the real problem. You know, there's this, there's this misperception that we've got to be tough. And the way that we show that we're tough is by picking fights. You know, it's Dr. Paul had a great thing in his column this week where he talked about, you know, a guy in a bar who's been drinking all day and starts fights with everyone. He's not, a, he's not viewed as a tough guy. He's viewed as a moron, right? <laughs> you know, he's dumb. And Dr. Paul always says, you know, it takes a lot more toughness to show restraint and to not do things than to fly off the handle. So I do worry too. I worry about the, you know, the bash China thing because it's the exact same thing. There's nothing that Taiwan has or does that makes any difference to us here in the U.S. We should pursue good relations with both countries. Eventually, they're probably going to get back together. So what? If you look at a map from you know the, the, the later part of the 19th century, there was basically no Ukraine. It was all Russia. If it goes back to that again, who cares? It doesn't matter. If California breaks off uh, from the U.S. and becomes a liberal utopia, who cares? You know, it doesn't matter. So it's artificially ginned up that we have to care and obsess so much about all these things everywhere. It's like we're a bunch of, we're a nation of neurotics who are obsessed with other people's business, you know, rather than fixing our own problems. And one of the things that occurs to me, to the extent that China becomes more capitalist and whether they're slipping back a little from where they were before Xi or not is another whole subject, but you know, as opposed to the days of Chairman Mao, of course, they're much more economically powerful. And and the more capitalist they become, at some point, they should be the largest economy in the world. And I think there's kind of a psychological fear that Americans might have that if we're not the biggest country in the world, somehow we're not safe. But there's 180 other countries who are not the biggest who are, have smaller economies, much smaller than China's, almost all of them. And they're not being forced to speak Chinese, as far as I know. And the funny thing is we keep punching our economy in the face day after day and then wondering why we're, not no, we're no longer number one. I mean, everything we do to try to maintain our status as number one actually decimates our status. You know, the sanctions on Russia are just one great example of how we keep shooting the economy in the foot. You know, the Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban was talking about Europe when he said, we basically shot ourselves in the lungs and are sitting here gasping for air. <laughs> that's, that's not a good way to stay, number one. I mean, I think with regards to China, I think they're great capitalists and they're great business people and we can learn a heck of a lot from them. What they are bad about, which I think is horrible, is that they're terrible with civil liberties. They don't have the view of the individual as having a value. And ironically, that's the part that we're adopting. <laughs> you know, we're, we're beating them up on the stuff they do well, which is business. And we're embracing them for the stuff they do badly, in my view, which is treat people like crap. So it's just kind of ironic. Yeah, it's funny because sometimes people think that that's what's working. 
they don't have a democratic process where there's debate or anything. So they can just force people to do what they want. And they think that that's the part that's working where it's no, no, no. They used to have all of that under Mao. And now it's the freedom part that's working. What you just described is what's holding them back. But this is human nature that we are always battling a little bit. Listen, I know you got to run. I've had the good fortune to go to some of your events somewhere around Labor Day. Are you guys doing another conference this September? Yes, absolutely. And thanks for bringing it up, Tom. Anatomy of a police state. I mean, it's going to be literally ripped from the headlines. September 3rd in the Washington Dulles area. Go to ronpaulinstitute.org. We have a banner ad there where you can click to get the tickets for that. It's going to be a great event. In fact, Colonel Doug McGregor is going to be speaking there, who I mentioned earlier in our discussion. Also, my great friend John Whitehead of the Rutherford Institute, I think one of the best minds right now on civil liberties is going to be there. So it's going to be a great event. My friend Jeff Dice from the Mises Institute is going to be there. So we, we, we love these get-togethers. And I hope you had a good time when you went. And I hope you'll come back to another one because, yeah, the speakers are great. The topics are important. But what's most important, in my view, is people getting together and realizing we're not alone out there. There are a lot of us. Yeah, absolutely. I second everything you said. I'll link to the page for the events and hopefully you'll be able to stop by again soon and we'll talk some more. Thanks so much, Tom. It was great being on your show again. All right, friends, that's going to do it for today. Just a few reminders to stop by TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support and check out all the ways that you can support my efforts here including joining my Patreon or my Substack. And if you haven't already, make sure that you go to itsthefedstupid.com to download a copy of my free ebook, It's the Fed Stupid. And as always, if you like the music you've heard here on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at tommullensings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.